Well, good morning. It is a privilege for me to be here. Uh, thank you for your kindness and your patience in having me back. Um, I was supposing that campus would not want to uh, <laughs> give me another shot at it, but uh, thank you for the elders and, and he to be back here. My voice is still not 100%. You'll hear it falter sometimes. We went about nine weeks in our house with absolutely no voice, uh, which the kids loved. It was like a nine-week-long game of gestures um, that I lost uh, miserably, um, but learned a lot, had lots of fun. Um, It's a humbling but learning experience to not be able to speak to your children and have to actually show them what you want them to do, serve them. And I'm grateful for the Lord uh, for that experience and especially grateful to be with you here this morning. And I'd like to speak to you a little bit on a, about a topic that is especially dear to my heart and I know dear to yours as well. And that is God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. God, you know, he, he rules and he reigns in this universe exactly as he pleases. Nothing occurs outside of his control. Every electron spins because he wants it to spin in exactly how he wants it to spin. Whether good or evil, hard providences or easy providences, God takes responsibility for every detail. Every sparrow that falls, every child that dies, every bloody war, every thankful heart. Yahweh gives and Yahweh takes away. Amos cries out, does evil come upon a city unless the Lord has done it? Isaiah says, I am Yahweh and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I am Yahweh, there is no other. I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am Yahweh who does all these things. He is in absolute control. And he's also powerful and great. Isaiah says that he sits above the circle of the earth and we, its inhabitants, look like what? Like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them out like a tent. He brings princes to naught and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. The oceans fit in the hollow as his hands. He's immutable, he's invisible, he's the blessed and only wise sovereign. He created absolutely everything with a word And he sustains everything with the word of his power. Your heart, your chair, it exists and it continues to exist because of his powerful word. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's existed throughout the entire incomprehensible eternity. And we love theology like this, don't we? We love to think about the majesty and the glory and the greatness of God because amongst all the horrible change and mutation that exists on our sin-infested planet, God does not change. He is the immutable rock with whom we can find rest and stability. We don't experience pain and trials from a God who wishes he could do more or from a devil who seeks to hurt us We go through trials because they're sent to us by the loving hand of a father who does everything for his glory and our good. But this morning, what I'd like to do with you is knowing that you're a church that is very well taught, well taught for generations. I think there's a tendency that that exists that if our theology is a little bit unripened and we only think about God and his transcendence and sovereignty, our perspective about him can quickly become cold and unfeeling. When we think about the fact that he sits above the circle of the earth and we look like grasshoppers to him, when we read in Psalm 90 that we're just a mist, we're just like a piece of grass that grows and is gone by the end of the day. What the doctrine that, that should have wrought wondrous praise from our lips produces sometimes the opposite. When we think of the fact that God does not change and he's this immutable, unchangeable rock, well, there are times when we're slammed up against this rock by the winds and the waves of this world with bloodied and bruised faces. And the worst part of it all is we think that he feels nothing because he's a rock that cannot change. We bring it into the realm of the practical. 
sometimes we get into so much despair that we think, I mean, why, why should I even pray? It's not like God can change anyhow. It's not like it, my life is actually going to make a difference. He planned everything from before the foundation of the world, and his decree cannot change. I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Malachi. Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. So just turn to Matthew and then jump a book back. Malachi chapter 3. It's a special text because we find in this text God's answer to this question. He speaks directly to how we ought to relate to his sovereignty. And this morning I'd like to be looking at Matthew 3, forgive me, Malachi 3, verse 6 and 7, and find three aspects of our relationship with God that are going to help us worship him, not just as our sovereign Lord, but also as our personal heavenly Father. First, that God is immutable, God does not change. Second, that we are mutated, we are changing. And lastly, that God is personal and acting in our world. So please read with me Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me. And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Father, we beg you this morning that you would open our minds to understand this text. That we would see you more clearly. That we would worship you more appropriately. Father, send your Holy Spirit to work mightily amongst us. That we would leave this place different than as we came that we would learn to worship you and obey you, Father, because you are worthy. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, assuming it might have been a while since you studied the book of Malachi, let me just set the context a little bit. We're at the very, very end, obviously, of the Old Testament. Um, So, you know, you had a a time with the patriarchs and then the judges. you, know, you, you kind of have the, the story in your mind a little bit. You know, creation, fall, power of Babel, patriarchs. Then you've got Egypt, and they come out of slavery, and judges, and then and God establishes a monarchy. And they disobey, and so God sends them into exile, and they're in exile for a while, and God's disciplining them, and then he brings them back into the land. That's kind of the last phase of the Old Testament. And, and the question really of these last few books of the Old Testament are, is that discipline going to work? Right? God brought them 70 years into exile, and he's disciplining them and purifying them. He's going to bring them back to the land. And the question is, is Israel going to learn her lesson? Is Israel going to obey God now? And the short answer is not even close. <laughs> you know, they get actually worse. And so God prophesies that in the last days, he's going to discipline them one last time in a terrible and severe way that we know of as the Great Tribulation. And at the end of that, the Messiah is going to return and purify them and establish his eternal reign and fix everything. But I want us to kind of see how far Israel has fallen and and walk with you through the first couple chapters of Malachi so we can see this pattern that not only has Israel sinned and rebelled against God, but they've gotten to the point now where they're blaming God as the sinner, not them. You have this repeated pattern throughout the book in which God accuses Israel of their sin. They not only deny their sin, they accuse him of being the wrongdoer. So we're just going to jump through a few verses to kind of get us up to speed and get to Malachi 3, 6. We'll start in Malachi 1, chapter 2. God says, I've loved you. I've loved you, says the Lord. What a sweet statement. They say, thank you. No, they deny it. They say, how have you loved us? So God has to explain their sin and how he's loved them, how he's going to make it right. Same pattern in 
chapter 1, verse 6. God says, a son honors his father, a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? Says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests who despise my name. But you, instead of repenting, deny it. They say, how have we despised your name? God explains, by offering polluted food upon my altar. And they deny it. How have we polluted you? There's this implicit statement behind all these. We haven't polluted you. You've polluted us. God explains, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, isn't that not evil? He goes on to ask them, would you offer that even to your own governor? Of course not. So God explains to Israel their sin. They deny it. Then they accuse God as being the one at fault. And this kind of continues throughout the book. And I just want to fast forward to the section right before our text. The Malachi 2 verse 17. Malachi 2 verse 17 says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. But they deny it. They say, How have we wearied him? God explains by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them or by asking, where is the God of justice? So the Israelites, they're asking this question, where is the God of justice? And God answers that question in two parts, first in one through five, which we're not going to look at, and then six and following. In one through five, the answer is basically, The God of justice is coming. The Messiah is coming. He's going to purify the sons of Israel. He's coming, and he's coming after you. He's coming in judgment. But that kind of then begs the question, if the Messiah is coming, and he's coming to judge, is he going to wipe us all out? So verse 6 kind of explains how God's discipline is going to function and directly answers the question, Where is the God of justice? So point one, God is changeless. God does not change. The Israelites cry out, where is the God of justice? And God kindly and patiently answers, I'm right here where I've always been. I do not change. I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. Notice the word, I, the Lord. The Lord there is in all caps. That means it's referring to the Hebrew word Yahweh. I am that I am. Just hearing that name should have made the point. Yahweh is the great I am, the generational God of Israel who does not change and who always fills his, fulfills his promises to Israel throughout all times. His promises are irrevocable. But what happened is the Israelites, they started looking around their world and all the injustices that they were facing, all the pain that they were going through. And it began to disorient them from reality. They began to feel like God was distant from them, like he had left them. Have you ever felt like that before? You start going through a trial, and as you go through that trial, it feels like God is farther away than when you started. I remember crying out accusations in my youth against God, what? wondering what kind of selfish, egotistical, narcissistic God would make me suffer just for his glory. Because pain, it it has that tendency, if we allow it, to disorient us. And we need God's word, illuminated by his spirit, to bring us back and to hear God say, I am the same. I am immutable. I do not change. He says in Psalm 89, I will not violate my covenant or change the word that went from my lips. God cannot change. You say, okay, I get that. I I mean, I understand the theology that God does not change. God cannot change. But in the context of the question, where is the God of justice? Why is it that God's unchangeableness proved that he was specifically a God of justice? I mean, if injustices were occurring in Israel, isn't God, the sovereign ruler, somehow culpable? Well, the point in argumentation is basically this. God God says, wait wait a second. (laughs) You you want a God of justice? You think I've changed because you're not receiving justice? You think I used to be a God of justice during the days of prosperity of David and Solomon? 
but now I've changed because you're not prospering like you used to be? Look, if you got justice, you'd be in Hades right now. Right? You'd be burning. If you got justice, you would be utterly wiped out, every single one of you, when I come in judgment. Notice there in verse 6 that he specifically calls them the sons of Jacob. Right? Sons of Jacob, the only reason my wrath has not consumed you is because I don't change. Jacob's name was changed to what? To Israel. I don't change. I made promises to the patriarchs, and those promises are the only reason that you have not been consumed. Right? I mean, the just thing, the right thing in a sense, if we remove those promises, the right thing to do to a nation as wicked of Israel would be to wipe them off the planet. And the only explanation for why that had not already happened is why? Because God does not change. He doesn't promise to be with the people and then abandon them. The God of all justice states in Hosea, I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim, for I am God and not man. God is God. That is why Israel had not been destroyed. He cannot renege on his promises. He always keeps them. Right? His, his character, his nature, his perfections, his promises, his decree, they cannot change. They're eternally unchanging. We all wear out like garments. He remains. From the foundation of the world, he is the same. I mean, isn't that just amazing to think about? I mean, there's so much mystery there when we start thinking about the fact that God is eternal, that he had no beginning. And you try to run your mind back in eternity past, and all of a sudden, it just starts to hurt your brain, right? And you start to realize that God is just incomprehensibly more majestic than we can comprehend, right? And the concept there is not to try to understand it, but just to fall on our faces and wonder and marvel at his greatness. Job says, behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways, and how small a whisper do we hear of him. And I ask you, if the whisper we hear of God is so majestic, how much greater must his fullness be? God cannot change eternally the same God. Well, how should that change the way that we worship him? Well, let me ask you, has there ever been a time in your life when you felt God to be sweet? That enraptured moment where you were singing and it felt like your heart was just going to pop, right? And, you, and you're praising the Lord and you're thinking about his faithfulness and his grace and his mercy and who he is and what he's done for you and, and sending Christ on the cross to die and receive the wrath that we deserve. And you just have this moment where you just, you knew how sweet God was. Well, he is just as sweet right now as he was then. Because he does not change. Right? He does not change. He is merciful. He is good. If he was kind to you yesterday, you will find him to be the same today and tomorrow and forevermore because he is a dependable rock in whom we can find help and security. So if we're going to worship God as our sovereign Lord, we need to recognize that he is unchangeable. But secondly, we also need to recognize that we are mutated. We are changing he does not change, but we do. Notice there in Malachi 3, verse 7. God says, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and not kept them. Now, <laughs> think about this a little bit. From the days of your fathers. We can debate a little bit if that refers to the patriarchs or to Moses' generation. Or, but it really doesn't matter where you start in Israel's history. This is a colossally gracious understatement to say, you've turned aside from my statutes. I mean, you've read your Old Testament, right? It doesn't matter where you start. If we start with Abraham, 2166 BC, he laughs at God's promise to give him a son. Isaac, he doesn't want to bless Jacob because he thinks he's a mama's boy. 
Jacob doesn't learn the lesson. He treats his son Joseph better than the rest of his sons. They go down to Egypt. God, with his mighty outstretched arm, brings them out of Egypt in 1446 BC with miracles and frogs and turning the Nile to blood and hail, kills the firstborn, opens the Red Sea. They cross, they cross, bringing the Egyptian idols with them, bow down to them in the desert, and days into the desert say, What? I'm thirsty. I'm hungry. I'd rather be a slave of Pharaoh than a servant of Yahweh. Doesn't get any better with the second generation. They're lazy in the conquest. The judges are worse. Even the best of the Israelites, the judges like Samson, terrible man. Jephthah offers his daughter as a sacrifice. So we get to the kings. How Saul? Not a man after God's own heart. How's David, a murderous adulterer? How's Ahaz? He sacrifices the seed of Yahweh to Molech through the fire. So God disciplines them. He sends them into exile into Babylon. Daniel prays. They return 70 years later. Do they learn their lesson? No. They get worse. They're blaming God. What a monumental understatement to say you have turned aside from my statutes. 360,000 days. God's saying all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. But what a statement. What a statement to the indelible promise of God that after over a thousand years of persistent sin, God says, even now, right now, return to me and I will return to you. What a God. What, what patience, what grace, what mercy, what forbearance that he would tell us that. And you would think, you would hope that after God makes such an amazing statement of mercy and kindness, that the Israelites would hear this precious truth and they'd say, thank you, Lord, let's, let's return to God, help us ha- What do they say? Notice at the end of verse 7. They say, how shall we return? Now, some commentators, without reading the context, think, oh, okay, Israel here is humbly seeking information because they actually want to return. That's not what's going on. We've got to continue reading the book. Get down to verse 13. God's talking about our section, and God says, your words have been arrogant against me. So the statement, how shall we return, is an arrogant statement. Why is it arrogant? It's arrogant because God says, return to me and I'll return to you. And they say, how shall we return? What do you mean we need to return? We never left you. You abandoned us. Where is the God of justice? Where have you gone? This is a complete and total denial. We don't need to return to you. We're the innocent party. You're the guilty party. You need to return to us. I mean, how foolish can you get the audacity of their sin, the wickedness of their sin? And it's easy for us to think, man, I mean, Israel, they were a wicked people. And we forget 1 Corinthians 10, that this story was written says, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for whose instruction? For our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he what? Lest he fall, because we're made of the same stuff, my friends. We have a history of sinning just like Israel, sinful from the womb. And the clear application that first jumps out at us is if we want to return, if we want to repent, the very first thing we have to do is own up to our sin. God's not the one at fault. I'm the one at fault. We say with David, against you and you only have I sinned. Have mercy on me. I'm the sinner. We make no excuses. God does not change. God is always forgiving. God is always merciful. God is always gracious. And so if I feel like God is distant, If I feel like God has abandoned me, it's because why? It's because I've abandoned him. It's because I've disobeyed. 
I mean, this would be like, if we want to think of an illustration, I'm going to, sorry, Jim, I'm going to pick on you a little bit. But So Jim and I are having a conversation. And we get a couple of minutes in the conversation, and I, I, I start to, to turn. And I'm like, Jim, I, I'm just not feeling the love anymore. I mean, Jim, I just don't feel like you're, you're trying to have a good conversation with me. Jim, um, I feel like, you've, why are you abandoning me? Like, come back. I, and, and what is he thinking? I mean, is he really that foolish? <laughs> I mean, he, I, I, I'm sitting in the same place that I've been sitting this whole time. You're the one walking away. Can we really be that foolish? That we could look at a God who is immutable, unchanging, walk away from him, and then say, Where are you, God? Why have you abandoned me? Yes, we really are that foolish. The heart is deceitful beyond imagination. Who can know it? If you're crying out, where is God? Know that it's because you've walked away. Because he doesn't change. We need to return. We need to repent. You ask, how do we repent? Well, the text has a clear example of this. Obedience. We return to God in obedience. Now, we don't have time to get into all the details of verses 8 through 12. This is the classic text of the prosperity gospel nonsense. That God is going to bless us with physical blessing if we obey him. So, So let me just condense it down. Remember the context. Israel is in a theocracy with God. What is that? It's this form of government in which Yahweh is king. And tithes were a 10% tax, a governmental tax that the people of Israel needed to pay according to their law in order to support the work of the temple. And when an Israelite did not pay that tithe or tax, he was stealing from the government. And who's the king of that government? God. So it is robbing God. Now, in the Old Covenant, God had made a promise to them that if they disobeyed him, he would bring upon them physical curses, which he did. Everyone that he lists in Leviticus 26 and 28, they went through. They ate their own children. They went into siege. And he also promised them, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, that if they obeyed him, he would bless them with physical blessings. And his promise in the Old Covenant is that he was going to bless all the nations of the world. Genesis 12, Abraham's seed, in him all the nations of the world will be blessed. God was going to bless and save the world through Israel. Now, we don't really see that or understand that very much in the Old Testament because Israel never obeyed. And they never got those physical blessings. There's very few times when people like the Queen of Sheba came to Israel, saw all of God's blessing, and wanted that. What we normally see in the Old Testament is a man like Jonah who'd rather die than see the nations come to worship God. But that's how the Old Covenant worked. If if you disobey me, there'll be physical curses. If you obey me, I'm going to bless you beyond imagination And all the world's going to see that there's a God in Israel. They'll come and they'll worship me through you. And so God says, look, just test me. Just obey me. It's just in the simple thing. Just pay your taxes and see if I won't fulfill my promise and bless you beyond belief. Now, we're living in the new covenant. We don't have the promises of physical blessing, but the principles are identical. Israel had a command. We have commands. Israel disobeyed those commands and dealt with the consequences. We disobey and deal with consequences. Israel needed to turn from their sin and obey God to receive blessing. We're the same. You say, I don't feel the blessing. Then pray. Says, I don't feel the joy of my salvation. Read your Bible. This is not rocket science. We've hear, been hearing this in Sunday school since we were four years old. Blessing comes after obedience. Right? The joy of your salvation will not return until you repent, until you return. So kind of putting this second point together. Point one, God doesn't change. 
And so point two, if we feel distant from him, if we feel like he's abandoned us, the reason is because we've changed, we've sinned, we've walked away from him, and we return to him by obeying him. And so we can repeat the same application we saw in point one, right? I mean, if you felt last Sunday or last decade that God was sweet to you, but today you didn't feel that sweetness quite so strongly, it's because you have become callous to his grace. It's because you have become insensitive to his mercies because Yahweh's mercies are new every morning whether you feel them or not. He is unchanging and his mercy is everlasting. And if you don't feel it, it's because you are in disobedience. Repent. Repent, return to God that you might be restored to the joy that God desires for you. Now, point three, if we're going to worship God, not only as a sovereign Lord, but also our personal heavenly father, we need to understand not only that he's unchanging and that we're mutated, we also need to get this idea that God is a personal God that is constantly changing in his actions And I want to kind of try to explain that. I know it may sound a little bit heretical at the moment. But I want you to just read along with me very carefully. Verse 7 again. Malachi 3, verse 7. And see how God describes himself to us. He says, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me. And I'll be waiting right here for you. The sovereign, immutable, changeless God. You left me. You can come back here on your knees. I'm not going to move. I do not change. You're on your own. Did, was that a different version? Than, do you? No, no that's, that's not what it says. No, it's, it's actually emphatic. It says, return to me and I will return to you says Yahweh Sabaoth, Yahweh, the Lord of the armies of heaven. It's absolute authority, absolutely emphatic. Same verb both times. You return and I'll return. In fact, the Hebrew term is often translated with the term repent. Repent. And if you repent, I'll repent. And we kind of, oh, Wait, now, who is this Josiah? (laughs) Did we vet him properly? What's his theology like? What what do we do with this? I mean, God says many times in the Bible, Genesis 6, God saw the wickedness of man and he... No, we don't want to say it, but the Bible says it. God repented. How do we understand that? How do we understand this reality that God says that he repented? It's a sticky theological issue. The theological term for it, you don't need to know the term. The term is an anthropopathism. I'm not interested that you know that. I'm interested that we understand the text and understand how to live according to what it says because it's a precious truth. How do we understand? Why does God say he repents? And if he doesn't repent, why would he say that? So this is kind of like an anthropopathism, which is when God describes himself in human terms, right? The Bible talks about finding shelter under God's wings, that his eyes are upon the righteous. It's a terrible thing to fall into his hands, that that man's sin grieved God in his heart. Does God have wings? Does God have eyes? Does God have hands? John 4, 24 says God is a spirit. But the problem I think most people face in a, in a verse like this is that, that we say, okay, um, so God's repentance is just figurative. He, he can't actually repent. We know that God can't repent because Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. So God can't repent. So it's just figurative. So we kind of just jump over the statement. I beg you, don't do that. I beg you, don't do that. This text means something. Obviously, God does not repent like us. But this statement is meant to communicate something precious to us. I mean, when you're reading the Psalms and you hear that we can find shelter under God's wings, 
Do you say, ah, well, God doesn't have wings, so I find no comfort in that statement? Or do you say, there's an imagery that God is creating for me here to communicate the tenderness and protection of this huge bird that's created a nest in this, this perch that is high and unassailable in a place where no one can reach us, a place of absolute protection and tenderness. It's a beautiful thought and we worship him through it. So when God says, return to me, and I'll return to you, repent, and I'll repent, we can't just throw this statement out. The Holy Spirit, masterful in language and infinite in vocabulary, chose to describe God with these words. But before pulling out a few truths here, I do just want to caution us that there's mystery here. Our God is holy. Our God is beyond our comprehension. Let's not limit him and think that he has emotions and mood swings like we do, right? God doesn't have emotions like us. God is not bound in time like us. He cannot react to our returning because he has an eternal decree that he determined before the foundation of the world. God is holy, and that means he's wholly different than we are. And so we just marvel at this when we worship him and we encounter truths like this. But there's something revealed to us here. There's a truth communicated to us. And there's two ways that I think we can understand this. Two things that I think we can apply here. First, God is communicating to us that he is personally and intimately involved in his creation. He is a personal heavenly father. I think when we think about sovereignty, we can often get discouraged because we're these little grasshoppers that are way distant from him. We can get discouraged when we think of election and sovereignty because we think we're just kind of like robots that God programmed for the foundation of the world and he's out there somewhere in space kind of just watching how it's all playing out. But that's not the picture that God gives us here. God is deeply involved, and though we don't really have the vocabulary and words to describe him in all his awesome holiness, he communicates to us often in the scriptures that our sin and our obedience affect him at a profound level in ways that we can't understand. Let me try to give you an illustration, something I've adapted from Deuteronomy 31. But I I have three children, many of you have children. Uh, let's say it's time for one of my sons. My daughter's on the front row, so I'm going to talk about my boys. It's time I know that they need to go get some shots at the doctor. And so, you know, I get on the phone, and I'm the one who makes the appointment. And I plan it out. I know exactly how it's going to be. We're going to the office. I mean, we've done this many times. We're going to go to the office. We're going to wait a little bit and wait for them to call us back. We're going to wait a little bit more. Nurse is going to come, and she's going to try to make it as chill as can be, but there's going to be this moment where I have my little boy sitting on my lap looking at the needle and it gets his big old buggy eyes start to get teary and looks at my face and I respond to him, look, son, I determined this a couple of weeks ago. I know this is for your good. Your tears just don't affect me. I mean, mean, is that really what happens? I mean, does the fact that I planned it make me unaffected? Or when it's happening and I look into his little eyes and he's crying out to me silently, hopefully, (laughs) do my eyes fill up with tears too? Because that's what a personal Heavenly Father would do. There's a second, and I think more important, point that I want us to see here and and we need to see the logic of the text to get it and it's this point one we saw is that God cannot change and what we mean by that is that his nature and his perfections and his promises cannot change now God's actions can change Jesus became a man But his nature, his essence, his being, his promises, his decree cannot change. That was point one. Point two is that we are constantly changing. We are constantly changing. Now here's the the point, here's the concept. I'm going to say it and then try to explain it. 
when I change, God must change his actions in accordance to his perfect nature. So God cannot change. And since God's nature cannot change, when I change, he is forced to change his actions to reflect his perfect nature. Obviously, God is sovereign over the entire process, but when we change in our actions towards God, he's required to change his actions in accordance with his unchangeable nature. You say, that kind of sounds like heresy, Josiah. What do you mean God is required or obligated to do something? God's God. He can do whatever. No, he can't. No, he can't do whatever. Can God lie? Why can't God lie? Because it would be inconsistent to his nature. It would go against his perfect nature. He can do whatever he wants, but he could never want to lie. He's always bound by his perfections. So let me try another and more ridiculous illustration, and I just want to apologize in advance to any cat lovers out there. Okay, so we have a room, and no, no way in or out except one door, and the door's got one of those little windows in it. And inside we have a cat. We open the door, and we throw a mouse into the room, and we shut the door. What does the cat do? I mean, the cat is like having the time of its life. It plays around with the mouse a little bit. And a few minutes later, it's in the corner digesting. Happy as can be, purring. We wait until that moment where it's just in absolute bliss. Reopen the door, throw in a nasty pit bull, and shut the door. <laughs> what, is the cat, what does the cat do? The cat completely changes its actions. Runs for its life for about seven seconds. <laughs> now, from an outside perspective, if you're looking through that window, you would say the cat completely changed in what it was doing. In one instance, with one situation, and then in a different situation. But I would say that if we would try to put ourselves in the shoes of the cat, and I say shoes of the cat because we do live in L.A., and people dress up their animals in some weird ways. <clears throat> but if we put ourselves in the shoes of the cat, I think the cat would say there was absolutely no change going on there. The cat acted in perfect accordance with its nature, in the exact way that we would have predicted it to respond. Why? Because that, that's why all of us do what we do. Why do sinners sin? Because it's in our nature to do so. Why does act, God act perfectly? Because that's in his perfect nature to do so. So what's the point? If you put a sinner in the hands of a God who is immutably just and unchangeably angry at sinners, what will God do? He will cast that sinner into hell and he will punish him forever. And it will be eternal because God will impartially and eternally stay angry at that sinner because he does not change. But in the same hands of that same God, if by his grace that sinner repents, what will God do? God will save that sinner. God will bless that sinner. God will take out his heart of stone. God will place his spirit upon him and God will save him forever. Why will God do that? Because he's immutably merciful and he has told us that that's what he will do. This, we, we don't presume upon his grace when we say this. This is an act of faith, believing and expecting that God is going to be who he is and act accordance to his perfections. Now that Christ has washed away all of our sins, God has voluntarily placed us into a relationship with him in which he must bless us. That's a marvelous truth. You say, that kind of sounds hard to believe. What do you mean God has to do something, that he has to bless us? Listen to Paul, Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things he has to. 
It's in his nature to do so. And to not do so would be to change. And he cannot change. When we pray, this is what we're praying for. That God would do what he's promised to do. That God would act as he has revealed himself to be. Moses, all the men and women of faith in the Bible, this is how they pray. They say that God, God, you've promised, you have told us, you have told us that you are God slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. So save us for the glory of your great name. Act in accordance with your perfections. And I cry out and I say, God, you have said to me that you take no pleasure in the wicked, that you desire all men to be saved. Save my children, Lord. Act on your behalf for your glory in accordance with your perfection. Such a wonderful news that God always acts in accordance with his nature. This is why he does anything. You ask, why did God send his son to the cross? The worst injustice that you could comprehend. Hebrews 2.10 says that God sent his son to the cross because it was fitting for him to do so. It was fitting for God to uphold his perfect righteousness and justice by crushing his son for our, for our sin. And it was fitting for God in his perfect mercy and abounding grace to save us by his blood. It's an expression, a perfect expression of God's character and nation, nature. Such a wonderful news. Malachi 3, 7, return to me and I'll return to you. There's no exceptions there. It's not return to me and eh, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see how I'm feeling. You know, we'll see how you've been doing lately. Have you been reading your Bible? And we'll see. No. No, God's not a man that he should change his mind. He will do it. And faith is being certain that he will act as he's promised. This affects everything we do. When we evangelize, we don't go out in the street. We don't tell our neighbors, repent and believe and God might save you. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how he's going to be feeling that day. I don't know what he's going to be doing that day. But if you repent and believe, there's a good chance God might save you. What do we say? Repent and believe and you will be saved. Why can we preach that with absolute certainty? Because I, Yahweh, do not change. Because I, Yahweh, do not change. We're not limiting God and submitting him to our whims. Now, this is quite the opposite. This is the only sovereign always and exclusively doing what pleases him and acting in accordance with his nature. And I think this verse is one of the verses that brings me more daily peace than any other. Why do I say that? I I don't know if you've ever asked yourself this question. Ezra does in Ezra chapter 9, if you want to read it at another time. But you get to a low point, don't you? And you ask, God, how could you forgive a sinner like me again? Again. I've sinned over and over and over and over again in the same stupid way for the same stupid sin. I've come to you a hundred times in the same way with the same tears, with the same contrite heart, asking the same thing, just as ashamed, just as broken, and I never learn. And one of these times, my flesh tells me, one of these times God's going to say, Josiah, enough. I've had it with you. So my flesh tells me. My flesh tells me there's no way that God's going to forgive you this time. Why even ask? And so I run to this text and God tells me, impossible. Because then I'd be a man just like you. And I'm not. I am what I am. And I, Yahweh, do not change. And you will find me just as forgiving today as you did 10 years ago, as you did 20 years ago, as you will 10 years from now. Because I am the same God ready to forgive today, tomorrow, and forevermore. But I need, to, I need to end with an exhortation. And it's this. There may be someone here thinking, Josiah, this is really good news. Right? I mean, God's going to be just as ready to forgive me in 10 years as he is today. Well, then I'll repent in 10 years. 
because God's God will forgive me. And I said, well done. You have understood point one and point three perfectly. But you forgot point two. God doesn't change, but you do. You may not get home this afternoon. You may die. Your life is a mist. Or worse, you may find, find yourself like Esau in Hebrews chapter 12, who's bawling, who's crying his eyes out because he wanted the blessing so badly, but he found no place for repentance because God said, you want to sin? Be my guest. And he gave him over Romans chapter 1 to his own fleshly desires, and he found himself beyond the point of being able to repent and return. God always stands ready. God always stands ready to, to receive us when we come in Christ's name. But today is the day that you can return. Today is the day of salvation that you can repent. So I don't know what the sin is that has distanced you from God. I don't know if you know Christ and need to repent and believe in Jesus for the first time or if you've known him for five decades. But I know that we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God and we all disobey. And when we disobey, that distances us from him. And today, this morning, the God of the universe is speaking to us in his word saying, return to me and I will return to you. Father, what a truth. What a truth that you are a God that is just, that is perfect, that is righteous, that is merciful, and that is gracious. What a truth that you demonstrated your grace to us in sending your son Jesus to die for our sins, and in him we find our hope. Thank you that you rose him from the dead to give us the guarantee that if we believe in him, we await that exact same resurrection. Help us, Father, to worship you in spirit and in truth, worshiping you as an immutable, sovereign God, not limiting your power, but also worship you as a personal heavenly Father who cries out to your people to be in a right relationship with them. Help us to not just hear this word, but to obey it, to take it to our homes, to take it to our neighbors, that you might greatly be glorified in it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.